This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another exciting edition of Jews You Should Know. This week featuring Shira Gura, a fascinating woman with a wonderful life journey and a creative and powerful system for healthy living and emotional well-being. Her Unstuck program is helping thousands of people around the world move through and past difficulties and challenges in their lives. And she explains how this came about listeners can implement its wisdom in their daily lives. Once again, thank you for those following us on Instagram. Please continue to do so and we will follow you back. We are at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. And now, without further ado, we head to our conversation with Shira Gura. We are here with Shira Gura the author of Getting Unstuck, an expert in helping people move through difficult challenges and getting, as the book says, unstuck from whatever's holding them back. Coming to us from Israel, how are you, Shira? I am doing great today. Thanks. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. You mentioned to me when we were corresponding that you are not from Israel, that you are from uh, the United States and ended up later on in Israel, living the dream, I guess. But uh, take us back and, and tell us where it all began. So I am originally from New Jersey, southern New Jersey, a town outside of Philadelphia called Cherry Hill. Cherry Hill. Did you go to Cherry Hill East? I did. I went to Cherry Hill East. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And I work at Maryland. I meet a lot of yeah. students from Cherry Hill, so I, I know East and West and <laughs> so forth. <laughs> Yeah, I lived most of my life there. I went to college at, in New Jersey at Rutgers. Go nights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I, I lived a little bit in Boston when I did my master's degree. I lived in California when I was doing my internship. And then I made Aliyah in 2009 with my Israeli husband and my kids. And we now live in northern Israel on a kibbutz called Hanaton. Very cool. So now, uh, going back early on, you said you were from Jersey. He said Cherry Hill, obviously, is, is really Philadelphia, more uh, specifically, really, people, I think, think of it that way. But uh, what, was your, what was your background like? Did you grow up in a, an observant Jewish family? How did you grow up in that regard? So I grew up in a conservative, I guess you would call it a conservative family, or a family who attended a conservative synagogue. I think that would be more, you know, Got it. stating it more as, as it were. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the conservative movement. I attended Camp Ramah as a kid, and I was in the USY youth program, very involved in that as well. And I've had quite a, a Jewish journey, actually. Uh, when I went to college, I, I met my first, <laughs> first Orthodox person in my life, actually. I don't think I've met somebody Orthodox before. I was 18 years old, yeah. Even though you lived in Cherry um, and so forth, yeah. It wasn't, at the time it wasn't, now it's, it, there's a very big Orthodox population in Cherry Hill. At the time there was, it was none, not that I knew of. So what was that like when you yeah, met that so, first more observant Jew? How did that, what, what kind of journey did that spark? That was amazing to me because it was, it was like everything that I had learned in Hebrew school, I feel like, I, I felt like I met somebody for the first time who was actually living what I had learned that we were supposed to be living on a you know regular basis um i i fell in love with all i i ended up living actually in a dormitory where it was called the hebrew section it was a dormitory where it was called the hebrew section because it was a dormitory where every section of the dormitory was a different language language house the idea was that it was a language house right so I lived in the Hebrew section because I really wanted to learn Hebrew, but what it ended up being was not a Hebrew section. It ended up being an Orthodox section, 
you know, it, was, it ended up being a section for Jewish people, not for people who were necessarily looking to speak Hebrew. It was very interesting how that happened. And so I became friends with all of these Orthodox people and I became very close with them and I began to adapt my lifestyle. I, I, I basically, I became religious um, and I started to attend Chabad and... Was it the same uh, beautiful building or they probably didn't have that back then? They didn't have it. They, they have a giant have 770 they replica. They were building nowadays. it as, as I left. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes, yeah. They were building it as I, as I graduated. So, yeah, so my Jewish journey has taken many a turn and it, and it continues. My journey is, is just never ending and it's wonderful. As it is for all of us. I, what, it's really interesting that, you know, one could theoretically imagine that when you would encounter something like that, you can go in different directions, right? A person could respond as you did with real curiosity and openness, but at the same time, another person equally could go in a different direction of, you know, cynicism or feeling judged or, you know, dismissiveness. What do you think about you generated that response, that that former type of response? Mm, I I think I was born with this obviously a Jewish soul, but like, like a passionate Jewish soul. I think I was always thirsty for connecting to Judaism and to God. And I, I just think it was like, it was the right place for me at the right time. And I was, I was there, I was hungry for it. It showed up in front of my face and I just, you know, I just went full force like into it. I think if I, I, you know, if I didn't have that thirst, I don't, obviously, I don't think I would have, maybe I would have rejected it or I would have left the, the Hebrew section. I thought this was a Hebrew section. I thought we were going to learn Hebrew. I want to learn Hebrew, you know, and it wasn't <laughs> like that at all. I just embraced, I, I embraced what, what was. Did you, in yeah. fact, learn any Hebrew? <laughs> uh, well, I did. I minored, actually, in Judaic studies. So I actually took about six semesters of Hebrew. So I actually got to the, like a literature level, which is great, but I didn't, I didn't really learn much in that section. We, we were really focusing on the, <laughs> on Jewish living. That, that was the focus on that. Got it. That so now where, where did you go from Rutgers? You said you went out to California, did you, uh, you went to work, you went for an, a master's degree. Right. Well, first I took, I, I kind of took like a, yeah, I went to Israel actually. I bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> going to Israel because yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So that's what you do, I guess, when you don't know what you want to do with your life. So I bought a one-way ticket. I had you been to Israel before? I didn't make Aliyah. I did. I was there when I was uh, 16. On pilgrimage? On or youth group. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yep. And then I did another program called SAR-L, which is sure. where you volunteer for volunteer the, army. In the army. So I did those two things. And again, I just had this passion, this passion for Judaism, this passion for Israel. And I just bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> and I ended up, <laughs> I found a job. I worked for a Ramah. They have a branch in Jerusalem. And I was a, I was a counselor on a, uh, an exchange program where the high school kids would go for four months. And they had a counselor. So I, that was my first job. But anyway, I ended up staying in Israel for about a year. Was it at the Chabad Hanar, that, uh, that program? Yes. Wow, I, stayed, I, I am stayed so there. impressed. You know everything. <laughs> I stayed there myself in 1996 on a similar kind of program with my high school. That's the fellow. So that's when I was there in 1996. Well, there you go. So uh, maybe I we overlapped. I 96. I don't know. I, I don't bet. remember you. I remember, you a guy named, I remember a guy named Avi. I don't, yes. I, was that, was that uh, your co-counselor? Were you on my program? Avi, who worked in the office, right? Well, there or, was an Avi. There was an, or, Avi, an Avi actually our our counselor, our like Madrid. Oh, who's your counselor? Yeah. Okay. So okay. it was a young guy. I think he had just so come, gone so, to maybe to Princeton, possibly. Um, mm. I don't know, but anyway, that's it's a while ago. <laughs> it's going back twenty three years. A while ago. That's amazing. But we I were there at the same time. That's yeah. crazy. That's <laughs> crazy. Anyway, so when I was there, um, my parents were not very happy with me. Uh, they were, they thought I was kind of wasting my life and what am I doing? And I only have one degree and what am I doing there? And there was a, if you remember, a lot of bombings were ha in 1996, there was a lot of bus bombings in yes. Jerusalem. And anyway, so my parents were basically, um, they were sending faxes to the office 
you know, there were no cell phones at the time and no, I don't even know if I had email at the time, but they were sending faxes basically (laughs) saying, it was like, right. It was like, and there, it was like these like four words, you know, it was like, come home now, you know? (laughs) And so I realized, I think it would, you know, it would be better if I had more of an education, like really, what am I doing with my life? So I decided to go back to the States just to get a higher degree that I could then bring back and make Aliyah. That was my plan, at least. So I came back, I went to Boston, and I studied occupational therapy. I did my master's degree there. And then I ended up doing the internship out in California. And did, did you make that Aliyah right back or, uh, or not so quickly? No, no. I met this really cute Israeli guy at a Hanukkah party at the Hillel when I was doing my master's degree. And was this at and BU? And that or? cute guy ended up at BU. Yep, yeah. is at BU. And there was, a, there was a Hanukkah party. It said for Israelis, but I went anyway because I uh-huh. was interested in meeting an Israeli. And I met somebody who was on relocation from Israel. And we ended up marrying. And even though he was only supposed to be in the States for two years, and I was only supposed to be in the States for two years to finish this program, we got married. We had one kid. We had another kid. We had a third kid. We just, we basically rooted ourselves back in my hometown in New Jersey. And it was very hard to then pick up and leave. But at some point, my husband said to me, our oldest is now in first grade. If we don't do this now, we are never going to do this. And so I said, okay, I'm willing. Let's go. I know we, that was our commitment. Let's do it. I'm, I'm willing to at least give it a try for a year. Let's go. And so we did, and we didn't turn back. Were you ambivalent about it? Because you had been so gung-ho earlier, and, but it sounds like now you were a little bit more reticent. I was reticent because I was, I was rooted. I was, I was back in my hometown. I had my parents, my grandmother, my sister and her family, my brother and his family, probably a hundred other relatives, all in the same town. I had a job. I had several jobs, several part-time jobs. I was... And I was back in my hometown. I was really, really rooted, you know, like deep, deep roots. And at that point, I was like, this is a different story. Like, this is not, you know, this is not me, you know, single me. And I I have nothing, you know, like, this is a different story. I have three kids and I'm back with my parents. And so it was a completely different story. And it was really a hard decision for me, really hard. It sounds like it took a lot, a lot of uh, gumption, a lot of courage to do that. You had to get unstuck, I guess, <laughs> in order to, to get yourself yeah. there. And I think what helped was um, that I said to my husband, we'll go for a year. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I really knew that that wasn't going to happen. But I said to him, we'll go for a year and we'll try it. And I think that uh, that, that helped. Psychologically made it more manageable. Right. So what was, what was your husband's background? Where was he from exactly? And were you moving back to his hometown now? And So he is from the suburbs of Haifa. It's called Kiryat Atta. Okay. So he studied, um, he actually studied agricultural engineering. And he couldn't really find a job when he graduated. So he did a, I don't even know what it's called in English. In Hebrew, it's Hasava. Like he transferred his learning, like he's, he, he went back to school and he learned computers. He went into high tech. And, that, and so he was working for this company called Amdocs and they sent him to, to Boston for the two years. That, that's how we met. And then basically what happened was after we went to California and we came back to New Jersey because he was miserable in high tech. He was so miserable. He had back aches. He had headaches. He was in a cubicle for 12 hours a day. He was miserable. My dad, who's a builder, said, if you guys come back to New Jersey, I will teach you. I will give you a job. I will teach you the building business. I will teach you everything you need to know so that you can create your own business one day as a builder. It was like an opportunity that Nobody gets that in this world. Nobody. I mean, my husband had no experience in building. He had, you know, nothing. And my, my dad was going to give him a job and, you know, health insurance and basically support us. And it was probably the greatest gift besides my birth, right, that my dad had ever given 
to my husband. And so basically what happened is when we moved to Israel, my husband ended up starting his own building business. And has that persisted? Yeah. And he is, he's, he has a reputable business. He is super busy. He has to turn away jobs. Amazing. Incredible. What kind of building? It's, it's mostly residential? Yeah. Uh, single homes, single family homes. That's a very fulfilling uh, occupation, especially in Israel. It is. It's wonderful. And there's so much building going on. It's really, it's a really great time to be a builder in Israel. If you think about it, you know, he wanted to do agriculture and grow the land. He's still growing the land just a little bit differently. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess you can see it like that. (laughs) Tell him I said so. He doesn't have to feel guilty. Um, What were you doing this time in Israel and and how did you start to get into some of the interesting pursuits that you know, came to define your career and your passions? Yeah. So when I came here, my first commitment was to my kids, was to getting us all acclimated, was finding, you know, a home and schools and, you know, where do we go if we get sick? And that was like my main, that, that was my main um, occupation in the beginning. Um, Eventually, I took on some part-time jobs that had nothing to do with the occupational therapy. I did fundraising, and I worked, um, I worked for a while for a, so, a sociologist doing research. I, I was doing basically anything just to be able to be, uh, be at home when my kids would come home from school and do something in English. I just didn't want to you know, find anything in Hebrew at the time, so that's where I was starting. And about maybe three years into, or maybe it was less than that, into making Aliyah, I started a blog. And the reason I started a blog was because before the blog, I started writing to my family members once a week or so just to update them on what was happening and, and the struggles that we were going through and, and things like that. And I realized instead of writing the same email you know, to like three or five or 10 people, I could just write a blog and send them the link and that would be just a little bit more effective. And so I called the, the blog Stuck in the Muck 365 because <laughs> a lot of what I was writing about was, you know, difficult things that we were going through as a family, but also personally, you know, moving to a new country. It, it's just not, it's not easy. You know? even, though, even though you and, had been there um, extensively before, and even though your husband was a native Israeli. Right. It is not the same. It is not the same as, as you know, coming on a work visa. And it's not, it's not, it wasn't even the same for him because he was coming to start his own business. And he started with nothing, he, nothing. He had no connections. He learned how to build, you know, American homes, which is out of wood. So he, he had to learn you know, a different kind of building here. I mean, we had, we had nothing. We had no income. We had, you know, the kids didn't have the line. It, it was very hard, very wow. hard in the beginning. Did you regret your decision very in hard. the early days? No, never, never. Not in the beginning and not now. I'm 100% complete with being here. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So you were doing this uh, fundraising and random kind of odd jobs, and then you started the blog. And where did the blog kind of take you? So the blog grew an audience uh, by, by ch- I say by chance, it wasn't by chance, right? Nothing's by chance, but it grew an audience, but I wasn't actively looking for an audience, but it grew an audience because I was sharing stories that people were relating to. And it, the stories weren't necessarily about Aliyah per se, but they were about me dealing with my husband or me dealing with my kids and, and feeling stuck on different emotions stuck on anger and frustration and disappointment and resentment and, and how I was able to get myself through those situations. And I ended up creating a method called the stuck method, which is an acronym. And that grew the audience even more. People became very interested in what this self-help tool was about. And then the audience approached me many people were saying, you should, you need to turn this into a book. This is, you know, this is, you have something huge here. And I was like, well, I'm not an author. And I don't even know the first thing about writing a book. And so basically what happened is I turned this into a book and it would, it won um, in 2017, the international book award uh, contest in self-help. 
Wow. And, and basically all of this just learned, it just kind of snowballed the book and then it became a podcast and I'm coaching people now and I have an online group program and now I'm certifying people in my method and it's like going and going and going. Snowball effect. Snowball totally. effect. I, I want to walk back and I, of course, want to drill down into understanding what the stuck method is um, and what it all stands for. But I have to ask because you described it as kind of almost self-evident that, you know, you're writing emails to your family. Hey, why not just stick it up on a blog for, for anyone to see? But I think that's a pretty radical departure. In other words, sharing or obviously very vulnerable and personal struggles with close loved ones is very different than putting it out there publicly. So why were you willing to do that? And, and was that was that in any way a you know difficult dilemma for you to bear your soul, so to speak, to the world um, instead of you know just sharing with with the few people that you wanted to to, to know about these things? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's just it wasn't at all hard. I think because it's my personality that I don't have any fear of sharing my struggles or any suffering that I have around anything. I'm just I don't. I, I just don't have that. And people continue to this day, they ask me or they say how amazing it is because I still share stories and now I just share it in the podcast instead of a blog. And um, I, just don't ha- I just don't have that. I don't, I, I'm, as long as the person who is in the story, which is, happens to be a lot of the time my husband, and he gives me full, <laughs> full permission, you know, I get the scan. <laughs> he's like, yeah. And the reason is, the reason is, and this started way back in the blog, the reason that he gives me full consent is because I usually start off the story painting this picture of this man who was like this monster and, you know, and he said it like this and he didn't acknowledge me and whatever it was. And by the end of the process, 100% of the time, what's revealed is that he was fine. He didn't do anything wrong. It was how, it was my thinking that created my suffering 100% of the time. So it's great for him because he's constantly reminding himself that he is fine. You know, he's, he's not doing anything. <laughs> he's, he can't hurt me, right? If, there's, if, if I'm feeling hurt by something, by him, it's because I'm allowing myself or it's to feel hurt or I'm thinking about it in a way where I'm allowing myself to feel hurt. So anyway, so he gives me all that he's like, you know, share whatever you want, you know, share whatever you want. So and a lot of the children quite quite humorous. Um I do share, I do share about my my kids, but but not as much. I do. And if you go back, you'll if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear stories about them, but not as much because I don't have as as many of those kind of interactions that I do with my husband or a neighbor, you know, or, or even with myself. Sometimes I trigger myself. I don't even need anybody else to help me about, you know, like I, I do a really good job at making myself crazy, anxious or whatever. So sometimes I don't even need that another person to tell a story. So what is the, the stuck method and, and how did you develop it? Is it just kind of your own brainchild? Uh, was it inspired by other self-help methodologies or any psychological you know, research or anything of that sort? Well, what exactly is it and, and where did it come from? So basically, so I'm, I'm also a, a yoga instructor and I practice mindfulness meditation. And so what I realized as I was doing this blogging, what I realized was mindfulness for me, it wasn't enough. So in other words, here I am, I'm getting stuck on something. I'm so upset about something. Okay, so, so stop, breathe, right? Be mindful. Just notice, notice that you're angry. Notice. It wasn't enough. I needed a step-by-step tool to get me from stuck to unstuck. And I didn't have that. And I needed that. So that's, that's where it came from. The tool is based on the best practices in the psychological world today. So it's based on mindfulness. It's also based on CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's also based on compassion therapy, which are like, those are like the, the, I think, like the top three most commonly used uh, self-help tools or therapeutic modalities today. So I just tell me a little bit more about what is compassion therapy. I'm more familiar with, with mindfulness and cognitive behavioral. Compassion therapy is a new term to me. 
Mm. So compassion therapy is basically learning how to hold yourself in compassion, learning how to forgive yourself for what maybe maybe you reacted to someone and you you know you yelled at somebody and now you regret it and now you're holding yourself in this terrible place for making have you know you made a bad decision or you did something you spoke to someone in a bad way so compassion therapy is is basically learning how to hold yourself in compassion and say to yourself you know you're not an angel it's okay you're human and you make you make mistakes you can learn from what you did but hold yourself in a place of compassion so that you can move forward rather than keeping yourself held back in this place of resentment to, towards yourself or embarrassment or guilt, you know, that you're just like this terrible person and you're not worth shame. You know, yeah. You're not worth you know, or shame. Right. Mm -hmm. how, how do you balance that with, uh, with accountability? In other words, uh, if you do something that, that is, shame inducing or at least guilt inducing you know compassion for oneself i would imagine does not absolve yourself of taking responsibility to repair or to, to make an amends for what you've done so it, within compassion therapy is there an element that says you know repair the damage as you're also nurturing yourself so the process of the stuck method is basically contemplating a moment in time Right. So it's not for like someone came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm having so many problems with my husband. I don't know what to do. I don't. So if I were working with them, I would say, well, let's go back to a moment in time that we can contemplate, that we can look at and kind of take apart the story and see, figure out what's going on. After you go through this process and you get to a place of feeling better in that moment, feeling like you let go of whatever the difficult emotion was that you were holding on to, maybe it was guilt, maybe it was shame, but you're, you're, in a, you're in a different place. After that, then the next step is what do you choose to do, right? The next step is, like you said, it could be repairing. It could be having a conversation with someone. It could be forgiving someone. It could be whatever that next step is. But the first, the first part of this, which is the getting unstuck work, which is what I do, is helping them to get unstuck so that they can move forward. So I think so what you're asking for is, is definitely there, but I think it's not the foundational work of getting unstuck. The foundational work is like you need to let go of feeling guilty in order to be able to recognize that you can say to yourself, okay, I did something wrong, and in the future I'm going to I'm going to watch for that so that might not happen again. But if you're holding on to guilt that whole time, I think, you're, I think the person would be clouded. I don't even think they would have the ability to, to look forward because they're, they're going to be held back into this, you know, this dark hole of, of guilt. So what does stuck actually stand for? Okay, so I'll tell you it in a nutshell. I mean, I, I could, you know, do like a two-hour uh, sure workshop on this. <laughs> right. So I'll tell you the letters and then you'll tell me how much you want me to go into them. But okay. so S is for stop. Okay. S is for stop. And that's, that's the mindfulness technique, the, right. the mindfulness, uh, the part of it where you're basically, you know, you, you literally stop whatever it is. You take a breath, you come back to the present moment, you get out of your story, which is usually um, it's, it's, you're either in the future, you're fearing something when you're in a stuck spot or you're in the past, something happened and you're, you're stuck in the story of what happened. It's never present. You can't be stuck in the present moment. So S is stop. T is for tell. Tell is where you access your emotions. This is where you identify which emotion or which emotions you're stuck on. So I have a chart in my book called the stuck method chart of emotions. It's divided into seven major emotions and emotions that are related to that. And I encourage people to not only, you know, circle the emotion or identify, point, you know, point out which emotion they're stuck on, but actually say it in a way which is a little bit atypical with how we usually uh, express our emotions. So if I'm feeling angry, usually I would say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so angry right now. But when we speak that way, the way that I just said that, the person basically is identifying with the emotion, right? It's like, I'm Shira, I'm angry, 
right? We're like one and the same. And I am not angry, right? I am not angry all of the time. I, I happen to be right now feeling anger. So instead of saying I'm angry, I encourage people to use this language. I'm stuck on, and then the noun instead of the adjective. So I'm stuck on anger. And it's a tiny little trick to the brain that helps the brain or the mind realize like, well, just like I am stuck on it, I can also get unstuck from it. So we're basically separating ourselves from the emotion in that step. We're also recognizing where we feel it in the body. And we're also allowing ourselves, whatever emotion we're feeling, we're allowing it to really run through the body. What we typically do with emotions is we resist feeling them. I can go on and on and on, but I'm going to move on because I don't know how, what, how much you want me to talk about it. Okay, so U is for uncover. Uncover is where we access our thoughts. So when we're stuck on a story, a story is made up of thoughts and emotions. And our thoughts create the emotions. So at this point, we need to understand what are we thinking? What are we thinking about what happened? We need to understand that. Why? Because the source of every stuck spot is a thought. The source of every stuck spot. You are stuck on something because of the way you're thinking about it. 100% all of the time. Give me an example. Understand. We need so, um, okay, here's, this is the, the story from the podcast this week, was that I had sent an invitation to the family my husband's family here and what, I don't know if you know what WhatsApp is. It's an app. Of course. <laughs> uh, okay. Unfortunately, okay. I'm, I'm on it about uh, 98% of the day. <laughs> okay. 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 So, so we have a group for his sure. family. family WhatsApp. Yeah. Okay. So I sent a WhatsApp to the family cause I'm kind of, I, I, I kind of took on the role of like organizing the family for all the holidays and right. birthdays and whatever. So I write, okay, it's February. Let's get together for the February birthdays. Right. And one sister-in-law responds, great, you know, let us know the date and we'll be there. Now, before, like a week passed and I didn't, I didn't set a date yet. And what happened was, and again, I got permission to share this. So one of the brothers-in-law wrote, I'm inviting everyone to my house on this date for my son who is celebrating his birthday in February. And I saw that and I was confused because I sent the WhatsApp out to invite everybody, whoever is celebrating a birthday in February, which is four people in the family, for all of us to get together. And this brother invited the family to celebrate one birthday, his son. And I was stuck on anger, for example. I was really upset about that. And I clarified. I said, wait a minute, are you inviting everyone to your house so we can get together for, and everyone will, and he said, no, 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 just my son, who's a year different from my son. And I got really, really stuck on anger. So now it could have been anything, right? I, I don't know what the story was. I don't know if the child insisted on this. I don't know if, you know, he's an only child. So, so there was a story there. I don't know because it's a, a divorced, it's a divorced family. Maybe there was a story. I don't know what the story was. All I know in that moment was I was really stuck on anger because I made an effort to get everyone together. And I feel like he pulled the carpet under my feet and did something totally inappropriate in my mind. Right. And so the reason that I'm stuck and you might be, you might agree with me and you might not, but I was stuck because I was thinking, okay, that my brother-in-law is an awful person. I was stuck because I was believing that my brother-in-law is disrespectful. I was stuck because I believe my brother-in-law is insensitive, right? I had a whole list of I believe, I believe, I believe, right? But what we do in this step is not only list what you believe, you have to do inquiry work. You have to investigate every single belief and ask yourself if that belief is 100% true. Now, 99% of the thoughts that arise in our mind, they're not 100% true. They're limiting beliefs. And yet we live our lives as if they are true. And that's what gets us stuck, right? So I believe, you know, he's a jerk. Is that 100% true? And I asked myself, and of course, the answer is no. He's actually a really nice guy. You know, so that's not true. 
And so I go through my list and I put an X next to every belief <laughs> that's not 100% true, right? Because initially you have this, this story, which is 100% true. You're totally right. Everyone else around you is wrong. You are 100% right. But that story is made up of thoughts. And if you start to X out some of those thoughts, basically your story becomes not as stable as it was in the beginning. And that's great. That's awesome. Because if you can do that work, you are ready to get unstuck. Because the next step is C for consider, which is basically what other alternative perspective might exist in this situation that you didn't see in the beginning because you were blocked from it. You couldn't see it in the beginning. You just right, I was, was going to ask you because it sounded like the you is more focused on the person as a whole. Like he's not a jerk. He's not insensitive, but maybe in this case, he's being a jerk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like even if he's not a hundred percent of the time insensitive, but maybe in this case, he's still being insensitive. So it sounds like now the next step is, okay, well, now that I know he's not a total jerk, is it possible that in this case specifically, he also is not being a jerk? Is that an accurate mm -hmm. representation? Well, for me to say that he's a jerk, that's just my perspective, right? Even if I say, you know, all the time he's not, but in this moment, he really is being a jerk. That's not true right? with a capital T. That's not true because... That's just my mind making a statement about what it perceives. I don't know that, that he's being a jerk. I, I, I really can't know that for sure. That's just my mind creating a story. That's all it is, right? Because somebody else, for example, my husband could be like, he's not being a jerk. He was just, he was just protecting his kid, right? It could be same story, two different people seeing it completely differently. So, you know, for me to say, well, you know, in this situation, he really is being a jerk. It's not, it's not, right. it's not true. It can't is be Is that what the C is? Yeah. So the C is basically what else can you consider? And it's, and it's like expanding your, I call them consideration muscles in your mind. It's kind of like doing yoga for the mind. It's like stretching your mind's muscles and seeing what else is, possible what is in the realm of possibility you don't have to marry all of your considerations but you have to like you have to dig you have to do some work what else is possible so i can consider that his son is the one who insisted on this right i can consider that my brother-in-law actually spoke to his son and said this is not what we're doing but his son insisted and and he wanted to right you know, he wanted to you know I can consider his son has, has problems, has, has emotional problems. And this is, you know, I can consider I didn't put a date out. I didn't invite the family. I put it out there generally, but he was the one that came and put a date out. And he has every right to do that, right? I can consider next February getting in touch with him ahead of time and seeing if we can work out something so it doesn't end up like this. Right. I can consider speaking to him, asking him, you know, does he want to reconsider? Does he realize that my son is hurt? There's a whole list of things I can consider. I can consider this really isn't a big deal. <laughs> right. I can consider my seven-year-old is really not going to care. Like, this <laughs> is not like, you know, I can consider I'm making a big deal of this, but this really isn't a big deal in the scheme of things. This is family and this is not a big deal. You know, like I, I had, a, I had a plenty, plenty of considerations. And then you have to basically take on one. That's the moment that you get unstuck is when you take on, and this is kind of like the CBT work was where you, you take on a new thought. And that when you take on a new thought, that's going to create a new emotion. You're going to feel completely different, right? If I can consider, you know, I can consider my brother-in-law is doing his best, you know, he's divorced he has one kid, he's in a bad situation, he's doing his best, right? Love him for who he is, love him for who he's not, and move on. Don't get stuck, right? And that's it. And, and when I showed up to the party, I showed up with a smile on my face. I was happy for him. I was happy for his son. There was no, no remorse, nothing. There was, there was no negative feelings at all. I came completely, completely clear. And so getting unstuck is not only for you, but it, it affects everybody around you when you get unstuck or when you're, when you're stuck, it affects people around you. Is there a K in there? 
So the last step, <laughs> yep. So, so the C I'm is I'm trying really to figure weird. it out. I'm trying to guess ahead. And I can't I get, I'm it, usually really good with acronyms. I can't figure it out. <laughs> it's a hard one because I, I couldn't think of a good kind of, word that starts with a K. Kangaroos, heights, you know, what do we got? <laughs> so C is actually where you get unstuck. I really could have stopped the method at right. C. But, but again, sometimes when we get stuck, we hold, you know, guilt, shame, embarrassment, resentment against ourselves. So it was really important for me to kind of ceremoniously wrap this or close this process up with a place of self-compassion. So K represents okay. Ah, uh, okay. You cheated okay. a little bit, but, we'll, but so it works. <laughs> I, yes, but it works. It works. But you know what? When and you so text somebody, you, you know, say K, you know, so. <laughs> right, right, right. So this last step, you basically, you know, I, sometimes I put my hands on my heart and I just say, you know, Shira, you know, you got stuck on anger and it's okay. And it happened in the past. It's probably going to happen again. And, and, you know, it's okay. Forgive yourself and, and move on. I have a couple of questions just about this, this whole method. You know, first of all, how long does this usually take you or anybody to, you know, is there that initial period where it's like, I'm so angry and, uh, you know, and is the goal to kind of shorten the, the window between when it actually hits and when you can get to this, or is this usually something that, that you do later? Like what, what's, how, how does that usually take place? Yeah, you have such great questions, I have to Thank say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great questions. So this is a tool that you need to cultivate, right? This is not a one-shot deal. This is not like you take my course or you you'll go on a retreat with me and then you're like healed and you're never going to be stuck again. That is not what this is. This is a tool. For me at this point, it's a lifestyle tool. I can use it three to five times a day easily, easily. I use it all the time. So when you're first learning it, like, like you're first learning anything, it takes time. And getting help with it even, you know, getting coached by it is something, that's what I do is I help people because it's hard in the beginning. It's hard to see things that you just can't see. It's, it's impossible to see things that you can't see. After a lot of experience and you use it all the time and this, it becomes like a part of, you know, who you are, I can nip stuck spots in the bud in like nanoseconds. Like I can get from stuck to, you know, consider in like, like no time at all at this point. But that's because I'm doing this all the time. You need to have awareness that you are stuck and that's pretty much like half the battle because most of the times when we get stuck on something, we point the finger and we blame somebody else for causing us the way that we're feeling. And when we do that, we are not taking responsibility for ourselves and we will never get unstuck because we're not going to go through the process of getting unstuck because we're not at fault. It's, it's you know, he's, he's making me angry. So why should I get unstuck? Right? That's what people say. And so you need to also learn to cultivate this awareness, the self-awareness that Whatever I'm feeling, it's because I'm creating that. It's not because of anything outside of me. It's not because of any person outside of me. It's because I am creating that emotion with my own thinking. And that's not something a lot of people grow up learning in school or from their parents or, you know, the synagogue. They, so it's, it's a process. It's a process. It's a tool that you just need to, you need to cultivate. What do you do in a situation where something really is like objectively bad? You know, um, I don't know, God forbid somebody's abusive or there's something that's happening that's, that's really, you know, obviously a kid's birthday party, like you said, you know, big deal, a little bit of hurt, a little bit of resentment, you know, we can easily come up with a, an alternate consideration and so forth. But, but what about situations where, you know, a person really has been hurt and it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be as extreme as, you know, some kind of physical abuse, but, but something where a person was really, truly and authentically hurt and another person really did perpetuate that hurt. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult, um, it's the same work. And I, and it's difficult sometimes for me to say that. And when I'm on retreats and people ask me that, and I, it's difficult for people to hear that, but it's the same work. So Viktor Frankl, for example, who was a Holocaust survivor sure, and he wrote Man's Search for yeah. Meaning. Right. And so this is also based on logotherapy, right? So he has this quote, 
between every stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our freedom to choose our response. And in that response lies our, our freedom and our growth. So you think about somebody like that who was in a concentration camp and had probably more abuse, physical, emotional, psychological, than anybody that I probably know of, right, in, in the world today. And yet still, somebody like that was still able to recognize, even in that moment that I'm being abused, even in that moment of complete torture, I can choose how I'm going to respond to this. I can choose how I'm going to think about this. In other words, it doesn't have to be that automatic response of negativity or, again, blaming or pointing the finger. It doesn't have to be. There can be a deeper sense of touching into something much deeper and recognizing that there may be another way of looking into that. And that other way may be, again, this is difficult. This is more getting into maybe like theology, but, you know, getting into a place of like, Maybe there, there's a higher purpose for this thing happening to me. Well, because I was going to ask you how and if this sort of dovetails with Judaism, and obviously you are a deeply, passionately Jewish person, how this dovetails with Judaism and, and Jewish spirituality, you know, when it comes to the Nazis, and again, I don't think it has to be so extreme. It can be, you know, a friend who's, who's truly hurt you in, in, a, in a, you know, a, an objectively clear way. I, I would imagine that, it doesn't mean that you have to run back to that relationship. In other words, the resolution may be, and you'll correct me if you disagree, the resolution may be that you are exiting the relationship, but you can do so without deep resentment or with a sense that perhaps, as you said, there's some higher purpose for the pain that, and suffering that you've experienced. And it's really more about you and your emotional reality than it is about returning to another person or restoring a relationship at any given time. Yes, absolutely. Exactly how you said it is exactly how it is. So it's, it's about taking care of yourself. And then from that place of, again, that deeper place of wisdom of taking care of yourself, knowing that you are whole and you, you are complete as you are, then yes, then it's making another decision. Then it's, yeah, maybe it's leaving a marriage, you know, maybe it's, it's ending a friendship. You know, it's, it's any of those things. But the first thing for you is to get clear on what you are thinking and how you can choose to intentionally think about any situation. How does the Jewish piece and the theological piece fit into this whole plan? Is this system one that inherently requires a spiritual connection or invites in a spiritual component or you know, can it be sort of a standalone self-help technique? So it's not, you know, it's not a Jewish self-help tool. There's a lot of people using this around the world. They're not Jewish. Um, I definitely feel like it does invite people who are more spiritually connected to this method because at the end of a getting unstuck process, what I encourage people when I'm working them with them is to ask them, why do you think this this stuck spot came into your life. Is there a greater, is there a greater reason? Is there something that you can learn from this? And so, you know, it, it, depending on if the person is religious or not, and I, and I don't, I don't, I don't force God into the conversations. I don't, I don't force religion into the conversations, but if they are a spiritual person and they are talking about God, then for sure it's, it's beautifully aligned how they, how the person can recognize, you know, the greater meaning or purpose behind um, why that thing happened in their life and how they can grow, you know, and how they can even maybe even thank God for that stuck situation coming into their life because it's an opportunity for them to grow and, and grow deeper into a connection with God. Shira, just in closing, tell people where they can, learn more about it sounds like there's a book there's a podcast there's maybe there's still a website like give us give us the rundown and i'll try to put it in the show notes as well but what are just like the the top couple of uh access points for all the different things that you have to offer oh well thank you for letting me share the easiest way is they could just go to my website which is shira gura 
www.thepeacefulmoment.com. And from there, they'll find everything. Awesome. And that, again, everything includes the book, Unstuck, um, mm-hmm. as well as and your podcast. I have a podcast, and I am on Facebook. I have a Facebook group called Getting Unstuck. I have um, something called Consideration Cards, which I love. Maybe you'll love too. Maybe I'll send you. I'll <laughs> send you back. What, what do they include? I'll are these, send like, you a deck. Are these like different possibilities called- that could be going on in any given situation? There, yeah, it's basically consideration. So if you're feeling stuck, like if you're feeling stuck right now, and I'm going to randomly pick a card from the deck. And move. Okay. The okay. listeners can't see this, but she is drawing an actual card. It says, consider you, not, you cannot control their behavior, but you can control your reaction. How true. You know, for, <laughs> so for example, and it's wonderful, and I keep it at my desk. I actually pick one every day, and I use it just as like an intention. One every day. So the one actually that I got today, this is the one I picked. Consider you are resilient. Okay. Yeah. So that's what, that's my intention for today. And I just, you know, look at it and it's, it's perfect. Every every card that I pick is perfect for that day. (laughs) So they aren't necessarily responses to particular kinds of situations like, Hey, X, Y, or Z could be a different narrative here. It's really more general uh, meditations that that a person can uh, consider at a given time. Yep. There are general considerations that pretty much will work with any stuck situation that you're in. I had a whole group testing them before we, you know, before they went into print production. So we spent months trying to narrow down the 52, 52 cards. Uh, considerations. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, I, I would love to get a, a, a stack or a deck of those. So uh, I will let I will me, uh, let me know if we can hook that up. And uh, meanwhile, Shira Gura, Thank you so, so much. Wonderful thoughts and an incredible method for a person developing oneself and really for finding uh, far greater serenity in one's life and, and greater emotional well-being and ultimately productivity and, and service of God, I think, as well. So thank you so much for sharing this wonderful method and so much of your incredible story with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.